You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Hey, we are in this uh, great series, and today it's my privilege. I've got uh, some guests in town who are going to be uh, sharing today, and I think you'll understand why when you hear the power uh, of their testimony. I want to introduce to you uh, just good friends of ours, Byron and Annette Davis. Uh, Byron, to give you a little background for him, he uh, went to UCLA, and he is a former American record holder at, with the U.S. national team in swimming, and uh, just did a great job, went to UCLA, and the fact that I would let a UCLA person come up here as a USC fan is a big deal. I mean, are there any, come on, help me out of the Pac-10. Are there any, any other, any Pac-12, right? You know, we got any Cal fans in the room, any Stanford fans in the room? I mean, come on, right? But also, I uh, want to let you know that he was an associate pastor with me at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch, California, where uh, he and I served together before I came and moved up here uh, to Northern California. Uh, now, he is a career coach. He's the founder and director of the Epic Life Project, He's helping people get clear about their passion and craft their lives and career about stuff that they just absolutely love. And so he does that full time right now. His wife, Annette, is a pro beach volleyball player. She is an Olympian. Uh, Annette Davis and her uh, pro beach partner, Jenny Johnson Jordan, uh, were, have represented the United States in the Olympics. Uh, they have regularly beat uh, Kerry Walsh and Misty May. Uh, if you go to the Manhattan Beach Pier, their names are on the pier because they've won the Manhattan Beach Tournament a number of times. And uh, right now, she's actually graduated from being a pro beach volleyball player. She now has graduated to the highly exalted place of being a full-time mom. They have two kids, and she homeschools her kids, and then she does online fitness coaching called Beach Body Coach. So will you please welcome my good friend, Byron Davis, and a little bit later on, his wife, Annette. Amen, amen. Good morning. How is uh, Sun Grove doing today? Good, good. It's, it's awesome to actually uh, be here. Um, uh, the, the Davises love the flags. Um, I mean, they've just been an awesome, awesome impact on our family. We've known each other for a while. Um, my, my lovely wife, Annette, she's going to be coming up here in, uh, in just a moment. But um, uh, you guys are going through this, a series, Keep Calm and Carry On. And today we're going to talk about um, when godly people do ungodly things, uh, what should the church do? How should the church respond? So let's dive into that. Bow your heads, please. Father, <coughs> excuse me, we thank you so much. We thank you, Lord, first and foremost for your example and your commitment, your relentless pursuit of our hearts. We thank you for your unconditional love and your grace and your mercy. And Father, we pray now that uh, you would be in the midst and that, uh, Lord, you would teach, uh, dear Lord, that, uh, that, that your word would fall on, on supple and, and, and uh, readied hearts. Again, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a story about two uh, men who were coming out of the city, both uh, worked in New York, and, and uh, they were coming home on the train. Uh, one was a hedge fund manager, and the other one was a, a, a proud father of three, all three sons under the age of five. And uh, these two men were sitting on the train together, and they were, they were moving out of the city or, or going out of the city. And the hedge fund, and you got to excuse me, I'm just getting over a cold. <coughs> excuse me. The hedge fund manager 
was sitting in the seat and, uh, and started to uh, just get on the phone and look at papers and still continue to do work, but, you know, had his iPod, uh, you know, playing and just kind of being to himself, doing his thing. Right next to him was the dad of three and had his three sons with him. And, uh, and he was kind of just slumped over to himself, kind of checked out. And all the while, his three sons were just running rampant around the train. Again, they were all under the age of five, and, and they were hitting each other and pulling at each other and jumping and climbing all over their dads and all over the, their dad, all over the seats. And, um, and, and all the while, the hedge fund guy is like, um, you, know, uh, you know, sir, what are you doing? You know, he's just getting more and more annoyed, trying to ignore him, trying to keep his space, because this is one of the only few times in his life that he has his own solitude. So, so so he's trying to protect his, his solitude, his time to himself. But the kids kept running and jumping and climbing and clawing. And, and, and pretty soon the hedge fund guy turns to the dad and, and kind of gives him a nudge and says, excuse me, sir, why don't you be a dad? Look at your kids. Get them under control. And in that moment, the dad kind of was uh, shaken out of his stupor, and, and he looked up at the hedge fund guy, and, and uh, at that moment you saw his eyes were just swollen and bloodshot, and, and tears had just saturated his, his cheeks, and in, in a stutter he was, he was uh, very apologetic to the hedge fund guy, and he's like, oh, I'm, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry, um, my, my sons and I just came from the hospital, and they will never see their mom again. You see, they, their, their, their mom just died this morning. And we're on our way home, and, and I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I share that story with you because it's so important for us to understand that no matter where we are in life, it's so important to remember that perspective is everything. Perspective is everything. And as believers, it's, it's very easy for us to get caught up in our own perspectives. It's, it's very easy for us to get caught up in our own privilege and protected and, and personal perspectives that we lose sight of or become very unaware of the real events and perspectives of other people. It's so easy for us to forget about that, and, and that's why it's easy for us to oftentimes say um, phrases like, I just can't see how a person could ever do that. Or say, you know what, I would never do that. You would never ever catch me saying that. Those people must not love America if they're going to do that. You see, it's so easy for us to take on this posture because we're looking at the world through only a singular lens. Now, the real problem is this. When we allow ourselves to adopt that kind of posture on a regular basis, the real problem is this. We oftentimes will look at the circumstances of, in, in, in the, the lives of other people and we will always compare our best to the other person's worst. See, that's the problem. We, we tend to want to compare our, the best of ourselves 
with the worst of others. And when we allow ourselves to do that, especially as the hands and feet of God, what begins to happen is we start to develop a real danger in the church. In fact, there are four things that tend to happen in the church when we adopt that type of limited perspective. Number one, it's easy for Christians to leave the church when godly people do ungodly things. Oh, I'm, I, I, I no longer go to, to Sun Grove. No, 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 because you, do you know what so-and-so did? Yeah. Or we, as the people of God, start to refuse to, uh, to do the real work of forgiveness and reconciliation. When everyone knows the person did something wrong and the person decides to repent and now be, and is committed to moving on that track, we refuse to forgive and to do the heavy lifting of reconciliation. Or we deny the hard work of rebuilding our own lives or rebuilding our relationships or rebuilding our marriages. Or we just flat out stop serving the church. Oh, 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 I quit the choir because, you know, so-and-so's in the choir and you know what they did, right? All of these things happen in the church. And what really happens is the church becomes a weak voice and, and their impact is uh, rendered impotent in the world. Why? Because the world sees us as hypocritical. And, and the world sees us as, as, as someone who, who is putting on a face but really is out of touch with real world issues. All the while, God is calling us to be more to a dying world. Um, a church, a local church, is, is much more like a hospital than it is a country club. Those who are in the hospital are all what? Sick. Either they're sick or they're trying to heal the sick. Amen? That's what God is calling us to do. And you see, again, all these things, if we allow them to, they will divide the church. And we will become known more for the things that we are against than the things that we are for. We become known for the things that we hate more than all of the things and the people that we love. And God never meant for that to happen because the truth is, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. Everyone say all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the critical question is when godly people are in a season and they do ungodly things, here's the question. Write this down. What does the church do? How should the church respond? You see, that is the operative question that we all not only have to ask ourselves, we have to be willing to answer with our lives, with our demonstration. How should the church respond? Well, first of all, we got to remember that the church is made up of three entities. <coughs> Excuse me again. It's made up of, number one, the sinner right? Number two, it's made up of those people who didn't commit that sin, right? Everyone do the air quotes with me. 
that sin. And it's made up of God. That's the church. It's made up of sinners, those who didn't commit that sin, and God. Turn with me to John um, chapter 8, verses 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Um, I have a different translation. But I want you to listen to this. I want you to listen to uh, and, and just get a picture in your mind of what takes place. All right? Play this in your mind as I read this. Verse 1, chapter 8. But Jesus went to, the Mount, Olive, went to Mount Olives um, at dawn. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said, Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses' command, the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Pharisees are asking Jesus, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his fingers. And when they, they kept asking him the question, <coughs> excuse me, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. If any of you are without sin, you can throw the first stone at her. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the women still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. And then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I think that's a, a beautiful depiction of God teaching through demonstration. Remember, Jesus was, was getting ready to teach those who wanted to hear from him. And, and then the, the officials of the church came with uh, a woman who had committed adultery. Now, I want to point out here that the text is silent about her life. We don't know the circumstances of our life. And I'm not justifying this, but again, often we forget and not even consider the perspective of what brought the other person and led the other person to do what they did. Text is silent about that because the emphasis is on the posture of the church and the response of Jesus. The Pharisees were hell-bent on accusing her of doing something that obviously she had done. And giving her the steepest punishment according to the law. But Jesus does two incredible things here that I don't want us to overlook at all. Number one, when we saw this, he first challenged the people who didn't commit that sin. He challenged everyone who didn't wrestle with the issue at hand. And he challenged them to first examine who? themselves. He challenged them to, 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 to examine themselves. And, and my friends, it is important for us not to overlook and miss this so important point. You see, when we stop examining ourselves on a regular basis, especially in the context of real world situations, 
things that happen on TV and we watch the news long enough and all of a sudden we are, are more throwing fire and stones than we are figuring out a way of what would God want us to do in this moment. And we get so caught up in this that our heart grows callous. But it's only when we, on a regular basis, have, um, practice examining ourselves are, are we able to keep a heart that is humble and supple and empathetic. Not a heart that, that overlooks a wrong and, 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 and just cosigns on and lets people do whatever they want to do. And I'm not, not saying that. The text doesn't say that. But it's important for us to have that type of heart because God needs you and I to be cooperators in his effort to reconcile the world unto him. And if we don't have a heart that is soft enough to understand a person right where they are and not think that we or, or be afraid that others will think we're trying to condone that or we're trying to, to accept that, but instead have the courage and the bravery of come alongside, coming alongside people in their darkest moment, we won't have the capacity to do it if we don't examine ourselves on a regular basis. And so that's the first thing that Jesus did, was he challenged them by saying, first examine you, and anyone who hasn't committed a sin, you be the first to throw the stone. The second thing that Jesus immediately did in this situation was what? He addressed the who, the sinner, the one who committed adultery. And in what did he share with her in verse 11? He told her, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. He reminded her that Scripture constantly reminds us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the very reason why Jesus came was to reconcile and to bring back into union those who were lost. And again, Scripture has already established that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But you might be thinking to yourself, well, Byron, wait, okay, I, I, I get what the word says, I get what Jesus did, and that's cool, and yeah, I understand it, but look, are you telling me that I'm just supposed to let people get away and let this America, the United States of America, go to hell in a, a hay basket? Are you telling me that I'm supposed to just lay down and just, just let this stuff happen? No, I'm not telling you that. But let's take a cue of what Jesus taught and, and what Paul continues to echo in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Turn with me there. 1 Corinthians 6. All the while, Paul is writing the Church of Corinth letters because they are at fault and battle with each other, tension. They're accusing each other. They're suing each other. The church is being divided. They're not trusting each other. They're not being lovable at all. And Paul is writing this letter, and we, we find in, ver in chapter 6, Paul it talks about and addresses the issue. <coughs> Excuse me, addresses the issue of, of, of what about these people who are really doing these things? Here's what Paul said, verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor the idolaters, um, adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedies, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, 
nor petty thieves will inherit the kingdom of God. Stop there. Paul is saying, wait a minute. And, of course, he didn't have time to go through all of humanity's sins and list them out. But what he, what he did was kind of give us a good cross-reference, right? He, he talked about everything, all the way down to the, to the gossiper and the swindler, and the petty thief. And believe me, guys, if you've ever taken a pen or notepad from work, brought it home and never took it back, you're a petty thief. So Paul was trying to address everyone here and say, you know what, wait a minute, God already has this handled. It is God who is the one that is going to judge. It is God that's the one that is supposed to handle this, not you or I. Because this is, this is what he says in verse 11. Get this. He's talking to the same people now. He says this. And that is what some of you were. Remember, he lists all these bad things out, and then he reminds them that was you at some point in your life. But you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of who? The Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God. Someone say amen. amen. If it were not for the grace of God, so would go you and I. And so Paul wants to remind us of what it is and how we are supposed to respond. Even though we know people do wrong things, godly people being caught doing ungodly things. But understand this one lesson, guys, and if it's one thing that you remember from our time together, let it be this. This is the one lesson that drove Jesus to the grave. Don't forget what people were doing to Jesus in Luke 23, right as he was being crucified. We're coming up and celebrating his resurrection, but we can't celebrate his resurrection without first remembering what was actually happening to him. Turn with me to, uh, to Luke 23 very quickly. And in, 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 in verse 34, Jesus says this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, what they're doing. In the midst, get this picture, guys. Don't overlook it. You've heard this story so many times. It's oftentimes we forget about the impact and what really was going on. At the very moment after they um, they, they just beat Jesus to a pulp. Remember his back. Remember his, his, his head. Remember the state that he was in. In that very moment, his nails hand to the, um, are nailed to the cross. Feet, ankles nailed to the cross. Very brutally. Now being hoisted up onto the cross. Soldiers, in the verses um, that preceded, um, soldiers are ridiculing him. And saying, hey, you save other people, save yourself. And people hocking his clothes right there. In the midst of all of this happening, what does he say to the Father? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what Jesus did in the midst, in the very season of being persecuted to his death. That's what he did. And so, knowing what we know about Jesus, what cue should we take from him? Very quickly, 
Number one, remember John 7, that he tells the sinner to go and leave your life of sin. So what, did he, what, is, what does he mean? First thing that we have to do is truly repent. Truly repent. And then the second thing, what does the church do in this situation when a godly person does something ungodly? Well, 2 Corinthians 2.7 tells us to forgive and comfort him so that he would not be overwhelmed. That's what we do. God is telling us first to repent, truly repent. And then he's telling the rest of us to forgive and to have the courage and the bravery to come alongside someone and walk with them on their road to reconciliation. Amen? What I want to do right at this point is I'm going to invite my wife to come forward. And, uh, and while she's getting set, um, I, we want to share our testimony with you. Um, and then uh, I want her to have a chance to, to, to share. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version and, and give her an opportunity to talk. But we've been married for almost 19 years now. And, uh, and it's been awesome. And God has done some miraculous and powerful and wonderful things in our relationship. But it wasn't always like that. We were married in, in 1996, and um, uh, just after 2000, um, we announced or she told me that we were going to have our firstborn, our son. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and I was overwhelmed, um, and at the same time, I was heavily convicted because uh, up until that point, I was living a double life. I was living a compartmentalized life, and I had uh, committed adultery against my wife. And... Um, I'll never forget the day that she told me that we were having a son, and it, it just seemed like in that very moment, um, God kind of seemed like it just took his hands off of me. I, I felt so heavy and so convicted and so fearful, selfishly too, because I started wondering, well, wow, what, what, what if I contracted something that I didn't know? Heavens forbid, what if I contracted AIDS? Yeah, I, I, I didn't know, and, and, and I started being really nervous and paranoid, and I don't know if you guys have ever been sick, and, you know, you, you go on WebMD, every symptom you read is the symptom you have, you know, and, and that was it. I was convinced. Well, the, right before the term that, um, that, that she would be where, where she wasn't able to fly, we decided to go to the Bahamas to celebrate. And even there in paradise, uh, we had a, a, a little bungalow um, uh, room right there on the beach, waves crashing, sunset, beautiful. Couldn't enjoy it. Couldn't sleep, wake up in cold sweats. Up and all up until this time, I was constantly, I mean, I wouldn't sleep in the same room. I was so ashamed. And she just thought I was, you know, tripping because I was about to be a dad. And finally, there in paradise, I broke the news. And, um, you know, it wasn't the best timing in the world to share. That's a joke. It's a joke. We can laugh. We can laugh. <laughs> but, um, but that's when it happened. And uh, I'd like to sh uh, have her talk and share a little bit. All right. Oh, hello? Yeah. Got me? Okay. So keep calm and carry on. And in the midst of that, in paradise, like he said, how can you keep calm 
and carry on. You know, here I am pregnant, about to have our first child, and I'm thinking everything is perfect. Because, you know, we had a great relation, we have a great relationship, we had a great relationship. And like he said, it was compartmentalized, and I had no idea. Um, you know, this was a godly man. He did godly things. Um, our first date was to Bible study. Our second was to church, you know? So I thought, this, he's perfect. And in that moment when he had told me what was going on, what the truth was, what, you know, the whole truth, I just had to, I remembered my relationship with God. Um, and I had to remember that my relationship with God was the most important <coughs> relationship in the world to me and that I am responsible to God for how I respond. So was I angry? Very. <laughs> Did I want to kill him in the moment? Yes. <laughs> but I couldn't. And I just remembered, you know, I can't sin in the process because he offended me. I'm responsible to God for my actions. And my job wasn't to punish him. I'm not the punisher. You know, that's God's choice if whatever he wants to do with him. You know, he's his person. Um, my job was to, to love him. And that was the number one mistake that I made was putting him on the pedestal that he should have never be that he didn't belong on. God is the only one who needs to be here. God is the only one who's not going to ever make a mistake. God is going to be the one who's never going to, to fail me. So I was wrong in that. Then I got it back in order. And what I had to do first was I had to forgive him. The, God talks about um, Colossians in Colossians 3.13, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I remember that I'm not perfect. And yes, I didn't do that sin, but I have sinned. God, Jesus died for me just like he died for him. Who am I not to forgive him after I've been forgiven for so much? And just because I forgave him doesn't mean that I was saying, it's okay, honey, that you did what you did. But forgiveness, I was forgiving him in spite of what he did um, and showing him that I was, I'm still going to love you just like God does. And in order to do that, I had to pray. Because <laughs> when you love the, you know, he was unlovely at that time. You know, he wasn't beautiful and wonderful to me right then. But I had to pray to God, Lord, help me to love this man. Help me to be kind to him. Help me to continue to serve him in the process. I had to pray every day and be on my knees. First John 5, 14 through 15 says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If, and if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. I believe the word of God. And that's what I went to. I knew that if that's what God promised, that he would help me to love him because that's what he said he would do. God did it. Our marriage now is better than ever before. Every year it gets better and better and better, and I can't believe it. Um, and that's a testimony to what God can do when you let him work and move in your life. Mm -hmm. um, there were times, you know, where I battled thoughts. You know, this wasn't an overnight thing. You know, this was years of healing. This was years of... Uh, counseling. This was years of prayer, but I knew that I couldn't live in the past. 
And when those negative thoughts start coming in my head, the only thing I could do, knew to do was replace them with something else. You can't think of two things at the same time. So I went to Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think of those things. I couldn't think of those two thoughts at the same time, what he did or what he might be doing at this time, I had to give him to God, and I praise God in the process, remembering who God is. If he can create this world, this earth, you, me, he can do anything. He can restore, and he did. So that was my the three things that I did and that helped me go to his word, pray, forgive, and praise. Amen. 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 And Two things that I want to also bring up that Annette didn't mention, <clears throat> and we, we sang a song earlier today in, in praise and worship um, that, uh, you know, God make me brave. Um, she had to be very brave in that season to go through that. She had to trust God to do spiritual open heart surgery on me and really transform. Again, no guarantee. She, did, she, wouldn't, she didn't know if, if, I, would, if I would be that, that ready to repent and really change, and, and she had to trust God in that. And, and I have to tell you from the perspective of the one who did that sin, to, to, to watch and see her, two, two things that just floored me that, that actually, I mean, I wanted to be a better man than, than I was. One was because for the first time in my life, I had experienced a human person actually give toward me the unconditional love that Christ gave to us on the cross in the middle of being persecuted, in the middle of their pain, in the middle of being the one that was right, not the one that was in the wrong, and still choosing to trust God enough. Even though she was emotionally bankrupt, I had done that. Even though I was unlovable, I didn't deserve to be loved, she did that. And I saw that. I experienced that during that season. And it opened my eyes to another level that I had not done up into that moment. And that's when God truly started to transform my life. And, and, and so I, I shared that because some of you may be dealing with being on the other side. You weren't the one who committed the sin. You weren't the one being cheated on. You weren't the one who were stolen from. You weren't the one who, whatever the sin was. But you are the one being impacted. You are the one being hurt. You're the one wrestling with trying to pick up the pieces and pick out the shrapnel from someone else's sin. In the moment of how you're trusting God, God is in the, that very moment using you to minister and do a miracle in the very one that wronged you. And that's why it's so important for us not to forget that. To one, if you are the one who's fallen short, be honest. Repent, truly repent. And then if you are the other ones who didn't commit that sin, restore. Be brave enough and willing to trust God enough to forgive. And uh, there were people in our lives who represented the church that, that walked with us through this. And, um, I mean, two people. One, uh, a, a, a good friend of mine, um, uh, Kevin Jordan, um, it came alongside. I had a, a men that God surrounded me with and during that time who were real with me. 
and, uh, and who held me accountable and, 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 and who walked with me through that time and, and um, likewise with Annette. And, uh, and then there was a, a, a lay minister um, named Linda Humphrey who just brought us both to the word, challenged us both, um, had us evaluate and, and, and examine the specs in our own eyes apart from this issue. I mean, and, and get this, it wasn't the pastor. I mean, uh, you know, it, it was good to go to the pastor. We were able to. But to be completely honest with you, the one who did all the heavy lifting were the believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ who didn't give up on us, who didn't give up on me. And likewise, what we want to do is encourage you to, one, repent if you're the one wrestling with the sin. Then number two, to forgive, to restore. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.